All right. I want to talk to you this morning about relationships. About relationships. About godly relationships. I have to start off by asking a question. And this is a question we probably all ask ourselves at least one point in time, maybe every day in our life. And that is, what does God want from me? And it may also be asked about the church. What does the church want from me? And I've heard it, and you've heard it probably as well, especially people that have been to church and then fall away or never come to church because they have a preconceived idea that all the church wants is my money. Every time I go to church, they talk about money. Money, money, money. They want money. And so often that is the focus of what people think about when it comes to to church. They don't come to church because we talk about money all the time. Then they go on and they talk about God and all the things that God wants from them. And, and we can name a bunch of stuff, and many of it from the negative perspective, like obviously God wants our money. Uh, God doesn't want anybody to be rich. That's not a good thing to be, according to their perception. All right, God wants our time. We always have to go to church. The best time of the weekend is Sunday morning, and they want me to go to church. That's my time. I work all week long, and now I have to go to church. And then to go to church Sunday night, and then Wednesday, oh my gosh, way too much time. God wants my time. He wants all of it. And then he wants my obedience. Oh my goodness. He wants me to do things for him, and he wants me to do things that I don't want to do. He wants my obedience, and he wants my thoughts. He wants me to think about him. He wants my language. He doesn't want me to say bad words. He wants me to talk about God all the time, and he wants my desires. He wants me to think about him all the time and desire what he wants, and then he wants my fun. God doesn't want me to have fun. Christians can't have fun. Christians have to go around grumpy people because if you're having fun, that means you're worldly. Have you ever heard that before? Well, you have now. And here's the, here's the reality of it all. It's all true. God wants all of it. He does. He wants your money. He wants your time. He wants your desires. He wants your thoughts. He wants your fun. He wants it all. But see, we took it, we take it as a negative. God says, I want it all. But he doesn't want it from me to keep it from me. He doesn't want it from me so that I can't have fun. He doesn't want it from me so that I can't enjoy this life. He doesn't want it from me that I can't have money. He wants it all because he wants to purify it. He wants it running through his filter of purification through the blood of Christ. And he wants to take what is crimson red with sin, and he wants to turn it into pure white gold, holy, holy gold, 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 not white gold. Well, there's white gold too. But he wants it, and he wants to purify it, and then he wants to give it back to me. Did you hear that? He wants to give it back to you. He wants your time. He wants your attendance. He wants your obedience. He wants your sacrifice. But he's going to purify it and give it back so that now it comes back and I can use it in holy things, and he takes it through his righteous filter. These are all the details of life. These are all the things that occupy our time on this earth. All these things we just described are temporary details. Let me tell you what God really wants from you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't really care about your money. 
He doesn't really care about your possessions. He doesn't really care about that because he doesn't need them. God is the owner of a thousand a cattle on a thousand hills. He has no need for my physical things. What he wants is my relationship. That's what he wants. Now let's talk about relationship for a minute. Relationship can be thought of in three major ways. A, re- a relationship is, number one, it's a spatial relationship. Spatial, meaning physical, meaning Josh is there and I'm here. Calvin is sitting there and I'm standing here. Okay, It's a, it's a physical distance. It's a physical uh, separation. My relationship to Calvin is that Calvin is sitting there and I'm standing here. That's a spatial relationship. Right? Make sense? There's also a hierarchical or an organizational relationship. I want you to know I worked on that word an awful lot. Can you say it? Hierarchical? Did I say it right, Ange? Almost. Well, then how is the right way to say it, Ange? Hierarchical. All right, I'm sticking to organization. He wants our organizational relationship. I am a dad, and Jenna's my daughter. Or I'm a husband, and Chris is my wife. And we have a relationship through our organization. Um, God is the creator, and I'm the creation. Okay? So there's that organizational or that hierarchical uh, relationship that we have with him. So there's a spatial, and there's the organizational. And then here's the one that really he wants. That's the interpersonal relationship. That's the one that we want to focus on today, because that's the one that he really wants. You know, what's really important as we think about and talk about these relationships and the differences of them is that we are not alone in having a relationship with God. We are not alone. If all we ever have a relationship with God is a spatial relationship or an organizational relationship, that's not enough. That's not enough. Because you know why I say that? Because Satan has an organizational relationship with God. Satan has a spatial relationship with God. He has that. He knows where he is. He knows who he is. But the Bible says that's not enough. If you read James chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, in the message translation, it says, Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God? But then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful. Well, that's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do to them? What good does it do to them? See? Demons do that. But where are, what's, what's, what's the future of a demon? Can anybody tell me what the future of a demon is? Where? Hell. Okay. But they have a relationship with God. They have a relationship. So how can they go to hell? The wrong type. Thanks, John. They have the wrong type of relationship. And it's not that those are wrong relationships. The spatial relationship and the organizational relationship, there's nothing wrong with that. But what the demons don't have is the personal relationship. And that's what we can have. And that's the difference between us and demons. Demons have no opportunity to have a personal relationship because Jesus didn't come to die for demons. He came to die for people. 
He came to die for me and for you. I want to talk about a relationship and how important relationships are. Um, if you could run that little clip. I, this is the type of relationship. This is, this is the form of the personal relationship that we need to get eventually. Let's just run this little clip. Uh, this, the title of it is it's Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball or he felt like it. But, <laughs> But mo mostly, he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag. But when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. <laughs> He bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. <laughs> the gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. <laughs> he set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. The, suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him. He was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And he'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up, and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out to stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night, and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things. And he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us, and I pat his head. And there are nights when I, when I think I feel that stare, and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair, and he's not there. Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. Can you feel that relationship that he had with that dog?
Now, I know all the dog lovers here because they're all crying. <laughs> Chris is sobbing over there, and I hear a few other sniffles over here. And the guys that don't like dogs, they don't care. <laughs> Sue was clapping. He's gone. Sue doesn't like dogs, by the way. But the, but the point of that was the relationship that, that Jimmy Stewart had with his dog and how personal that relationship was and how personal it is. You see, God had a very personal relationship with man because when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, he walked the, cool, he walked the garden in the cool of the day. And he would come down and he would have a very close personal relationship with Adam and Eve. And it was designed to be perfect. It was designed to be ever after. It was designed to be eternal and never ending until Adam made and Eve made a bad choice. And they severed that relationship with God. They severed it. And it was never going to be the same. Because they severed it. And the only thing that was going to bring that back was a very significant, painful sacrifice by Jesus that would ever bring that back. Now, one of the reasons that I believe that we have such a mortal enemy in Satan is because we took a place in heaven that Satan was jealous over. And that was our relationship with God. Satan hates me because God loves me. Everything about Satan and God are opposites. God loves, Satan hates. We took a spot there in heaven. We, when God created, uh, the, when, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created mankind, uh, he created a special place in his heart for me. We often, we often talk about, and you've heard it said, that God-shaped vacuum that we all have, that nothing can, nothing can fill. We can chase it with our stuff, with people, with, 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 with our things. And we can try to fill that God-shaped vacuum in our life that nothing will fill besides the Spirit of God. Well, you know, I believe it's a necklace locket. I believe that there is a, a, that there is a man-shaped vacuum in God's heart for me. That only when I put my heart and his heart together is it, is it completed. That God wants me as much as I should want him. So when God made us that way, he made us special. We're not like any other creation. Because God made us specially, and as infinite as God is that we cannot understand, the billions of people that have lived and walked this earth, each one of them has a spot in God's heart that is specially made for them. Does that make sense? Does that give you the awesomeness of who this God is that we're serving? that he would care that much about us, that he would send his son then to come back to replace and to fix that severed relationship. And we see that because it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then he tells us in Matthew 11.28-30, it says, Come to me. 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I'm, I'm getting to understand a little different perspective of that message there. Because I didn't really know what a yoke was. I know what a yoke is. I mean, it's, it's something you put on cows and horses to pull wagons and plows and all that stuff. But how does it apply to my life? Let me read it to you again in the message translation. It says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What this passage is talking about is talking about the Old Testament legalism, the Old Testament laws, the, religional, the religion forms that we have to place on ourselves. We cannot earn God's grace. We cannot earn his love. So just rest in that and understand that you cannot do it. But he loves me so much that he wants to take the yoke from me. He wants to relieve me from the burden, thinking that I have to do something to gain his favor. And he says, just rest in me. Come to me as you are. Come to me just as you are, and I will take your burden. I will take your yoke, and I will give you a light load, and I will teach you how to live righteously and holy so that it goes well with you. I will take all those things that were in your life that gives you problems and all the negative aspect of those things, and I will refresh you with them. I will put them through a filter. I will then give them a righteous, holy perspective in your life, and I will allow you to live that way, and you will live this life fully fulfilled and fully blessed, no matter what your situation is in life. He will take it right where you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. You do not have to clean. You cannot clean your life up. Jesus loved us so much. He didn't change us to love us. He loved us to change us. You don't have to change to come to Christ. You just come the way you are. He'll do the work. He'll do the cleanup. He'll do the changing because there is going to be some changes. You can't repent from something and then keep walking the same way. You re when the word repent means you turn away. You turn around. You go backwards. You change direction. So God will change you, but let him change you. No man's going to change you. You don't have to fit this church's uh, program. This isn't about a religion. This isn't about looking good and looking the right way we want you to look. You come the way you are and let Jesus do the work. And he will do the proper changes. I don't do to gain his love. I do as a result of his love. I don't do anything to gain his love. He already loved me. He told me before I was even born he loved me. But now I do things as a result of his love. I want to please him now because of his love, not to gain his love. That's really important that we understand that, 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 that relationship that God gives us. 
Jesus loves us so much that he loved to die. He loved to die so that we can live to love. That God loved us so much that he died for us. 2 Timothy verses, chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Again, the message gives it a little bit of a translation that we can understand a little bit better, maybe. It says, in a well-furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to, to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every gift, kind of gift to his guests for their blessings. What kind of container are you? What kind of container am I? How do I become the good one? How do I avoid being the dishonorable one? How do I be avoid the trash can? I don't want to be a trash can for God, do you? I want to be a silver goblet. I want to be a crystal goblet. I want to be fine china. I want to, be, I want to have my life so that it can be used for honorable things to give blessings to others, not to be a garbage container. How do we do that? How do we do that? We do that by willfully and joyfully giving ourselves to God. We don't do it begrudgingly. We don't do it saying, okay, God, I'm going to serve you, but I'm not happy about it. If that's your heart, then you might as well not even do it. We talked about it in the Sunday school class today about God seeing our heart. If God sees your heart, you better be careful. Because I can fool men with my exterior. But I can't fool God if he sees my heart. So if, he's really, if you really think that it's okay, God knows the intention of my heart, you better be careful what you ask for. Because if he really sees the intention of your heart, what is it? Do you know what it is? Do you really know what the intent of your heart is? I, I ask that really an honest question because I'm not so sure it's easy for us to understand the intent of our heart. I can think I do. I can convince myself of it. I can fool myself. You know why I can fool myself? Because Satan has fooled himself. Satan really believes he's going to win in the end. He really believes it. He believes his own lies. He really thinks he's going to overcome God and somehow he's going to get out of that eternal damnation thing. Otherwise, you think he'd be doing something different, wouldn't you? He read the book. He knows what the end of the book says. But he is so deceived, he thinks he's still going to win. Well, if Satan can be deceived that much, then I can be deceived that much. And I, if I don't know if my intents in my heart are right. So therefore, I have to really pray, God, help me to reveal the intent of my heart. Why do I do what I do? Why? Is it for me? Is it for the God's glory? It's a humbling Request. It's a humbling, humbling search. But if you don't do it, you're at risk of a lot of bad things happening, not just this life, but the next life to come. Because you will have a next life to come, whether you know it or agree with it or not. So let's go back and talk about these things a little bit. What does God want from us? 
What does he want from me? When Jesus died on the cross, he made a willing choice to pay the penalty for my sin. He made the choice to say, for one time, I will pay the penalty for all time for mankind's sin. No man came and took the life of Jesus. It was his own personal choice. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18, once more in the message, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. In the same way the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I put the sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. You need to know that I have other sheep in addition to those in this pen. I need to gather and bring them too. They'll also recognize my voice. Then it will be one flock, one shepherd. And this is the key. This is why the Father loves me, because I freely lay down my life. And so I am free to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the right to lay it down. I also have the right to take it up again. I receive this authority personally from my Father. Now that's Jesus talking. Okay, but you know what? I have also some of the same rights that Jesus had. I can't lay my life down and then pick it back up. I can't resurrect myself physically, but I can lay it down willfully. And that's the whole point of this message today is are you laying it down willfully or are you coming in kicking and screaming and, and, and complaining about it? Are you coming against the situations in your life that are meant to give you direction and guidance and wisdom, and do you receive those, or do you argue against those? I think that's one of the things that will tell you what your intent of your heart is. How willingly are you able and are you accepting change? How willing did you accept to go where God wants you to go, or do you want to argue with God all the time? If you want to say, no, God, that's not what I meant. I meant this, and God says, no, I meant this. Who's going to win that argument? That'll tell you, who the intent of, what you what the intent of your heart is. As we conclude this morning, it's so important that we understand the significance of our willfully giving up our life. If, God, if you really want God to examine your heart and know the motives of your heart, then you better be willing to give it up. We talked about it in Sunday school about water baptism. We talked as an example. Um, you don't have to be water baptized to get into heaven. Point, case in point, the thief in the cross. Okay? They didn't say, all right, he received Jesus, time out, let's take him down, and let's water baptize him, and let's hang him back up so we can die. It didn't happen that way. No, he hung there till he died. But Jesus said, today I will be with you, you will be with me in paradise. Okay. So that proves a fact. I don't need to have water baptism. But the Bible does say Jesus does, he did get water baptized and he did say do it as, and follow his example. So we were instructed to, here's, here's the thing of all this. This is the, the point I want to make. If you have opportunity to be water baptized, you should. Why? Because it's obedient. Because it's an obedience of the heart. If you say, well, I don't need to be water baptized um, because the thief on the cross wasn't water baptized, therefore I don't need to be water baptized, I would say you better examine the intention of your heart because probably what you're having there is a little rebellion that's coming up. Jesus said, be baptized. Be baptized. 
Who am I to argue with that? Why should I think I can argue with that? Do you think I'm going to get a pass? Do you think that I'm so special that I'm going to get a pass when Jesus said be water baptized and I have opportunity to and I choose not to? See, when it comes that clear, you better be careful what you're asking God to examine. Because if you're asking him to examine your heart then and you have that rebellion, you have that, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't think I need to, who are you to think? Who are you to think? Who am I to think? I don't think. I do. I do what the Bible says. When it's that clear and when it's that obvious, who am I to think about it? And if you are thinking about it, you better examine who's giving you the thoughts. Because I'll bet you that's not coming from God. Why would, God dis- why would he discredit himself? Why would he bring an argument to himself? If God says it, he's not going to reverse it. He's going to say, do it. And now it's up to me to be willing to be obedient, to let my heart be obedient to do it and not argue with him. I don't want to argue with God because I won't win. I won't win. So do you? 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22 through 26. It says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The message inserts here on this particular verse, it says, joining those who are in earnest and serious prayer before God. But then it goes on to say in verse 23 and beyond, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So let me ask you a couple of questions this morning. Where are you spatially with God? Where are you organizationally with God? And most importantly, where are you personally with God? Do you have that personal relationship that he will look upon you on that day of judgment and he will do as the target reminds us? And he'll say, well done, Mike. Well done. Put your name in there. You did a good job. You did a good job. I'm proud of you. You weren't perfect. I forgave you. You did the best you could do with what you had. Well done. That is the relationship that we have to have. If you don't have that relationship, you're playing games. If you just say, I know who God is, and I'm just going to be contented with my relationship, you're playing games. And there's going to come a day when God's going to look at you and say, who are you? Who are you? I don't know you. I don't know you. You never had a personal relationship with me. Yeah, you knew who I was. You know where I was. But you didn't know who I was. And therefore, I don't know who you are. Now, I know that that's nobody's dream, the way to end it. Nobody wants to end their life that way. So the question is, where are you? Where are you? If you just close your eyes with me for a minute. 
And I want you to examine your heart. Nobody else can do this for you. Nobody else can examine your heart besides you. I can't see it. I can't see in your heart. But you know who can? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sees your heart. In all honesty, whether you're inviting him or not, he's seeing your heart. So be smart about it. Invite him to see your heart. Don't grudgingly hide it, because you can't hide it. What's your relationship with Jesus? What is your relationship with the Lord? Is it personal? Is it? I want to sing a song. All of us to sing a song. I want Jackie to lead it because I can't sing very good. It's a song that Cecil Dross would sing all the time in the garden. And that is such a special song because it is talking about my relationship with Jesus. So as you're examining your heart and as we sing this song, I want you to think about your relationship. And I want you, I want you to take responsibility for it because you have to. You're the only one that can. I can't take responsibility for a relationship. Only you can. Let's sing that song. Let's examine our heart as we sing it. we just invite you Holy Spirit we invite you to give us a conviction in our spirit if we need to be convicted and we pray in Jesus name that you will walk with us and talk with us and it will fellowship with you thank you Father. Lord I thank you I thank you Lord that we are all members of the blood of Christ to the body of Christ thank you for your presence with us Lord now go with us this week and Lord, let us not forget the words that were spoken today because I believe they were Holy Spirit-inspired words today. They were not just me. They were not the words of a man. But Lord, I pray that you would indwell, indwelleth in us this week and give us the inspiration to get closer to you and our relationship more holy and more pure that we could be those vessels that you want us to be, Father. Now go with us this day. We ask in Jesus' name.